The spring games are well underway. It's time to start getting ready for draft. We'll talk with Ray Murphy, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist about draft preparation next on Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shall kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. There it is. There it is. Get out. Get out. All right. It's number 4192. A line drive single into left center field. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Hey, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 10th. It's show number 7 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with Ray Murphy, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist about preparing for draft about features at BaseballHQ.com that'll help you prepare for draft, as well as some of Ray's early predictions for sleepers and creepers. And in our Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Arizona pitching prospect Archie Bradley. It's a big first Tuesday show of the season. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's time we started getting ready for draft. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, the first of the season, our feature expert interview with BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Always good to be here, Patrick. Well, you were here uh, just on Friday filling in for Jock Thompson. Now we have you on your own hook as the co-general manager of the BaseballHQ.com website and speculator columnist. And before we get started talking about all that sort of thing, what fantasy games, fantasy formats will you be playing this season? Okay, let me go through my laundry list here. So I have already had the labor mixed draft. That was a couple of weeks ago, and I think I did a master note here on the podcast about it. Uh, Tuesday night, I've got Outwards, the mixed draft there. And uh, later in the month, I've got the NFBC, which I do every year. Uh, I play some score sheet leagues, which is where I sort of get my AL and NL only fix. And I'll probably be dabbling in the daily games once the season starts. You had a pretty good uh, run in the daily games last year. You told me at First Pitch Arizona, you were pretty pleased with uh, how everything worked out. Yeah, it was funny. I kind of treaded water all year long and then got on a nice little run in September and, you know, ended up up for the year because of that. And I was talking to a couple of people in Arizona. I was talking to Todd Zola and uh, Derek Carty, who were doing a daily game presentation in Arizona. And I mentioned my experience and they said, that's actually very common because what happens is in September, all the football money comes into those games and football players start throwing their money into the daily games in September during the week while they're waiting for their next football fix. And in baseball, they're sort of, you know, not as accomplished or easy prey or whatever you will. So the, you know, the, the sharper baseball player has a uh, deeper pool of people to take money from in September. And once they explained that to me, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, they call them dead money at poker tables, and uh, the, the uh, saying is, if you look around the table and don't know who the dead money is, 
it's you. And that's what happened when I did the reverse and I tried to play the daily games in football a little bit this year. I was the dead money. So, Well, it all evens out. Stay with what you know, I always say. And speaking of that, Ray, every fantasy player has his or own way to prepare for baseball, fantasy baseball draft. But what do you think are some of the common elements that every fantasy owner needs to prepare? You know, there's some things, there's almost a hierarchy, I think, a, uh, you know, sort of requirements to, you know, we're basic to advanced sort of progression that, that I think you go through. And obviously the first, at the first tier, you got to know the player pool. You got to know the players you're looking at. You got to know your league format, understand your rules and how the players in the pool fit into them. And then later on, there's, you know, a, a rung up the ladder. There's sort of knowing your league and its tendencies setting a budget, knowing, or, you know, having a draft plan, a roadmap, and knowing that that plan or roadmap sort of fits, fits into your league's history. And then I think at a third level, you get to sort of this advanced, you know, metagame sort of thing. On uh, the first pitch tour last weekend, I was having breakfast with Ron Chandler and Doug Dennis, and Doug was talking about his preparations for the Labor NL League that drafted this past weekend, and he was showing us his draft prep sheet, which is a single piece of paper. And he was telling us that historically he goes in and looks and he can break down sort of exactly what the own, the returning owners at least are going to do budget wise and sort of maps out how the whole draft is going to go. And, you know, who the, for instance, who the first catcher is in the pool may change every year, but he knows that the first catcher, whoever it is in that particular year is going to go for X number of dollars. So he can sort of lay out a whole budget, not just for his roster, but for the whole league based on those historical tendencies. And Ron and I were sort of dubious and said, that just holds year over year. It doesn't matter. The players change. That's that repeatable. And he insists it is. And he has good success in that league. And I think that's sort of the, um, you know, if you're talking about sort of levels of consciousness, that's sort of the higher, the, the, one of the higher levels you can achieve is you're, you're, you're not playing the player pool. You're playing the other people at your draft table. I know in my own home league, it's an AL-only league, and we've had a couple of new owners come in over the last couple of years, and very quickly they've caught on to how the league tends to price stars versus the scrubs. It's caught on to how inflation affects the league, which we'll talk about more in a second. So pay attention to how your league plays because, as you said, it's not just the players that you have to pick out of the pool. You're also trying to play against the guys at the table, just like in poker, really, where you know it's, it's it's easy to win a hand if you, if you catch a, a flush or a full house, but the real masters of the game can read the players at the table and win games with low pairs. Yeah, that's exactly right. In auction formats, Ray, some owners like to set a pretty firm budget with each roster slot allocated a dollar amount. Uh, you know, the top guy is going to be a $33 guy, the next guy is going to be a $24 guy, and so on down till you've got a few $1 or $2 guys and it all adds up to the $170 or $175 you plan to spend. What's your opinion of this kind of budgeting, this this slot budgeting for player acquisitions? I think you said the key word right when you introduced the concept, and I think the key word is firm and how firm you are with these values. I think the concept is fine. It gets your head around sort of how you want to build a roster. But I think the trick is you got to write it in pencil. And, you know, it's going to change the moment the first player gets auctioned to the moment you buy your first player for... $32 in a $30 slot or whatever it is. Now, as long as you're written it all in pencil and you can go and say, okay, I paid $32 for this guy and I only wanted to pay 30 in this slot. So now I got to go knock off $2 and I'm going to go knock it off my middle infielder because it looks like middle infielders are going a little cheaper than I thought or whatever the 
local trend seems to be in the first hour or so of your draft, I think that's fine. But if you stay too regimented to it and you say, this is what I'm doing, I think you're, it might still work, but you're leaving an opportunity to adapt on the fly to the draft dynamics that you may have predicted how it's going to go, but you may not be exactly right. And I think the, the optimal approach is to lay out a framework like that, but then be able to blow it up, you know, if necessary, blow it up on the fly, or at the very least, you know, pull some levers, you know, move some dollars around and try to dollars to where you perceive the value is as the draft goes on. And that could change every hour. And certainly it's going to change year to year and, and league to league if you play in multiple leagues. So you have to stay sharp. Uh, I remember there's an old saying that's attributed to Sonny Liston that every boxer comes into the ring with a plan and the plan ends the first time he gets punched in the face. Exactly. And you may not get punched in the face, but the, you know if you've paid 30, you're seeing top players go off the board for $40 and your estimates were that the top player would go for 35 well, you know, there's going to be a correction for that later on, but you want to make sure you're positioned to take advantage of that correction. And that doesn't necessarily mean just holding on to your money until the bargains come, because then you may have too much money and not actually have enough bargains to throw it all at. So there's a there's sort of a constant recalibration that needs to be going on. And, you know, you're sort of vectoring a couple of different, you know, inputs as you're going through it. There's what's, what's available in a player pool, what's available still in your budget, what roster spots you have available, what yeah, and then the, and then the same things for everybody else in your league. There's sort of a you know you got to be watching your dashboard and tracking you know a whole bunch of things as you go along, and not just be tracking them and not just furiously writing them down and tracking how much money everybody has left, but actually interpreting and analyzing the data and figuring out where your strategy should be turning to accordingly. You mentioned uh, doing your uh, budgeting in pencil. I remember when I first started in rotisserie way before the age of laptops. That's that was exactly what I had was a, a list of my roster slots and if I filled a roster slot two dollars under what I expected I reapportioned I scratched out what the what the next highest roster slot was and added two bucks to it and conversely if I overspent by a dollar or two then I would go in somewhere and subtract a couple of dollars and that's how I kept track of it and back in those days with paper and pencil it, it's it somehow seemed like I was getting more done but of course like most people I'm using a laptop now uh, what's your opinion about using these uh, uh, drafting tools like Rotolab, uh, other websites offer similar sorts of things. I'm the biggest Rotolab fan there is. I just love the fact that it, it's got you know a really intuitive and easy to use user interface that I've sort of become very accustomed to over the years. And of course, it's integrated with Baseball HQ's projections, so the data in there is data I you know intrinsically trust, and in many cases have been you know reviewing and tweaking myself over the weeks and months of the off season. So that all makes a lot of sense, but it's gotten to the point where I almost will not do a draft until Rotolab comes out just because it's my preferred user interface. And it comes out, you know, late January every year. So it's not like I'm missing drafts because of it, but when Rotolab drops and I kind of get my dashboard and get to start laying things out the way I want to, and my, the way my eye has gotten trained to read years, year over year, it, it's really the only tool I draft with. So, you know, like I said, with the litany of drafts I'm going through, your know, Rotolab is sort of my constant companion in all of them. Talking with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com about auction preparation. And uh, Ray, in keeper leagues, there's a further consideration, uh, uh, two considerations really, making up your own keeper list and then understanding how inflation works and what you should expect. Let's start with the keeper list. How does the wise owner handle his own keeper preparation? Well, I, I sort of think what you have to do is, you know, it's not going to take you very long to settle on your own keepers. You may come down to a bunch of obvious guys that you put on your keeper list. And then you've got some bubble guys, maybe some top players who are at or near value, or maybe some 
cheaper guys whose opportunity needs to get flushed out during the course of the spring, so you don't know if they're a bargain or not. But anyway, you can you can break your keeper list into tiers pretty quickly. Your sure guys and your I don't know yet. And then I think after that, it's really important to go through and look at what the rest of the league might be keeping. Try to get a ballpark calculation, at least, of not only just what the inflation rate is, but you know where the pockets of value may or may not be. You know, are all the closers getting kept? Are all the top starters getting kept? Is there speed in the in the draft pool this year? You know, in leagues that keep eight, ten, twelve guys, you know, you can find that you know a commodity that isn't normally scarce becomes very scarce just because it's all frozen. So I think what you need to do is go through that exercise, even at a broad brush, and then go back to your own keeper list and you know, sort of take a second or third pass at it after developing some knowledge about what the draft pool looks like for the rest of the league, because that may take some of your bubble guys and make it very clear one way or the other that they need to be kept or thrown back. And of course, the player choices made, the keeper choices made by all the teams taken together create inflation. And if the math seems a little bit daunting, uh, Ray, for for some listeners, we should mention that one of the many fantasy baseball tools at BaseballHQ.com is the Custom Draft Guide, and it works in tandem with the site's Mac engine, and it lets you build inflation into your league's player pricing. So you get a list, and the list gives the inflated value of the available players rather than their true or normal value. Exactly right. It's one of those things where putting in the little bit of prep work is so worth it to give you that sort of computer-generated answer, if you will. You know, you can go into our Mac engine, which is an area that lets you, you know, create a team or, if you want to, your whole league, populate rosters, etc. You know, put in keeper prices. You don't even, if you don't want to, you don't even have to sit there and create a, each team in the league. You can just create one sort of super team and populate all the keepers on it with their prices. And then if you go into the custom draft guide, which is, of course, our tool that takes our projections and ties them to dollar values specific to your league's format, size, categories, etc., once you go in there, there's a little tiny box that says, you know, use keepers. And if you check that box, it's going to go back to your league and it'll freeze all of the players in the player pool that you you flagged as keepers. And if you put all the undervalued keepers in there and you find in setting that keeper list, you find that, you know, there's $300 worth of keepers frozen at only a total of $100 salary it'll take the $200 savings and allocate it back into the player pool. So that's how you get the calculation like you're talking about where it says Kershaw is really a $54 player. So having that data and just being able to print it out and have it as a quick reference, even if it's not exactly your list of you know bid maximums or whatever, but just to see those numbers and soak into soak them into your brain is you know really valuable, just like we were saying for you know changing that mindset or getting you over that psychological hump. Yeah, it really does work. Uh, f- before we uh, move on to, uh, to other topics, Ray, I know you're a big straight draft guy as well. A lot of fantasy players are getting ready for straight drafts right now, especially the lion's share of NFBC participants, mostly straight drafts. Now, in addition to knowing the player pool, what does every straight draft player need to be doing to, to get ready? I'm a, as you say, I'm a big straight drafter, and you know, one of my favorite columns to write every year is up on the site now. I posted my annual straight draft guide. Uh, this past Friday, and it's there for everybody for the rest of the month. It comes with some ranking lists where we take those custom draft guide outputs that we were just talking about and sort of adapt them to the straight draft because, you know, there are some things about a straight draft that are different from an auction, you know, value-wise and player ranking-wise. But to me, the straight draft is about so many thought exercises. You know, from the moment you find out what your draft slot is, you start getting your head around things like, 
okay, I'm one of I'm at one of the ends, so I get two picks in a row, and then there's you know 26 or 28 picks before my next one. So as I'm going to be very prone to runs, I'm going to be you know I'm not going to be able to react to things as well as I could if I were in the middle of the draft and see where the ebbs and flows are to see what's falling. Things are just you know any anything I am looking at on an end, if I'm considering taking it, there's no chance of it coming back to me, right? So, you know, then you have to go some, through some thought exercises, regardless of where you are in the snake, but particularly at the ends, you have to think about things like, all right, what's my plan for closers? Do I want one of uh, Todd Zola's favorite 100 strikeout guys do I, who are more expensive? I'm going to go in, uh, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh round. Or do I want to wait and fish in the back end of the closer pool in, you know, south of round 10 or 12? Uh, what am I doing about catchers? Do I want one good catcher early and then I'll fish in the back of the do I want two good catchers early, or am I willing to entirely punt the position to round 15 or later because there are guys in the end game I like? You know, these are all sort of thought exercises. Where are you taking your first starting pitcher? And it doesn't mean you know that you have to develop something like that auction budget line item we were talking about, where you say in round one I'm taking an outfielder, in round two I'm taking a first baseman, in round three I'll take a starting pitcher. You don't want to script anything out that formally, or at the very least, if you do, you need to you know, again, write it in pencil and be ready to change on the fly. But, you know, the, the more you model those things out and go through an exercise, and it's not just what you want at each position, but it's sort of looking at the player pool and the ADPs and saying, what if? So you say, if I get, I'll, I'll give you an example. This happened in my labor mix draft a couple of weeks ago. I took Adam Jones in the first round. I took Starling Marte in the second round. And my third round pick came up. I mean, I was in the middle of the snake, so it was pick, you know, 38 or 39 or something like that. And... Lo and behold, the best by value, the best like three or four players on the board were all outfielders. I didn't really want a third outfielder. I didn't want to go OF, OF, OF to start my draft. That's where the value was. And so as it turned out, I you know, went a different direction. I you know, reached maybe a half a round or so to grab Brian Dozier because I wanted to do something different there. But that was sort of a fault of mine because I knew I might go Jones and Marte in rounds one and two. That was a, you know, a sort of a penciled in plan going in. But I hadn't gotten as far to modeling out the third round and seeing that I was sort of painting myself into a corner and having to face up the possibility that outfielders were the thing that were available there. So the more, you know, prep and, you know, not necessarily mock drafts, but sort of, um, you know, I, I'm calling them thought exercises, the more of those things you can do and the more what ifs you can answer in advance, the better decisions you'll make on the fly. And making decisions on the fly is, of course, you know, what these games are all about. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. He's the co-general manager of the site, and he's also the speculator columnist. And Ray, I'll ask you to put on that general manager hat. We've talked about the Mac engine. We talked about the custom draft guides, both excellent tools for draft preparation. What other tools and information does BaseballHQ.com provide to help owners get ready for draft? So we've been talking so far about tools, you know, which are all driven, of course, by projections and you know, data uh, analysis and that sort of thing, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, the overall theme of the, you know, computer or the website spitting out answers for you or spitting out information. But, you know, there's a whole other element to what we do too, which is, of course, writing and, you know, pr producing columns and articles and analysis and, you know, the, the written word, essentially. And we have so many guys on the site who do such a good job of that, you know. Uh, I mentioned Doug Dennis earlier and the work he does in breaking down bullpens and doing what if scenarios and identifying plan C's and plan C plan D's and every bullpen is so important. And it's, it's so good to have that at your, your disposal, a couple of clicks away as you get ready for your draft. The work that Stephen Nickrand does with identifying 
starting pitchers in his buyer's guide column, and, if, and now he's doing the batter's side this year as well, is just really, really valuable in terms of identifying sleepers and gambles to avoid or young players who might be willing to take a step, might be able to take a step up, old guys who might have one more gasp in them. You know, all of these topics we're covering in written form. And that doesn't even get into the uh, sort of the bread and butter. What we do is the facts and flukes analysis that I know you were talking about on the show last, last week, where we really you know, take a player's last four or five years and, you know, break him down into trends and, you know, really just, you know, sort of metric by metric, figure out what to expect this year and, you know, sort of break them down and build them back up and figure out what the, uh, what, where the uh, skill trends seem to be going. So, you know, so much that we do on the writing side, and then that doesn't even get into the strategy articles, you know, the straight draft guide I was talking about earlier is an example of that, but, you know, how do you approach the draft, you know, different formats. We had a good discussion last week about, uh, some of the salary cap games and head-to-head strategy. You know, as you get into what the actual flavors of your league are, you know, we also have support for that and how to get best get your head around that. So, you know, we really do feel like that. You know, soup to nuts. We've got you know the comprehensive what you need for the drafter, and we're always you know expanding it. But you know, we sort of feel like the core is there every year, and we're just sort of you know pushing the walls out year over year, just trying to make it better. How about uh, daily games? Yeah, we've got a daily game offering that we're going to have ready for opening day this year. We sort of uh, did a internal beta test of it in late September. It's going to have some of the bells and whistles you expect there, you know, built around the HQ tools. So, you know, there are tools you and I have talked about here before, like our starting pitchers matchup report that rates the starting pitchers for the day that is sort of a a great native daily input into uh, lineup decisions. And we're going to build that around some other things that you expected. You can find other places on the web too, like having all the daily lineups posted to our website in the afternoon, tying them into some pricing options from the various game providers, uh, the, you know, having a, a company in column that talks about both the pitcher matchup scores and some of the better plays for the day. So that's, uh, you know, it's a little early to roll that out. You know, that'll be, like I said, something that goes live on opening day. And we'll have that available and ready to go right from the start. And, you know, we're hoping it's going to be a nice uh, additional offering for us. And you kind of touched on it, Ray, and you mentioned earlier this idea of the magazine scores and and people who uh, oftentimes you'll see them coming into a draft and they'll have the, uh, what used to be Street and Smiths and Mazeroski, now it's uh, some of the other magazines, including the Baseball Forecaster for that matter. And Owners need to understand that the the production deadlines for those magazines means the projections are being made months before spring training has started. And I think it's really important to understand the advantage of a BaseballHQ.com situation where the projections are updated online every day. Yeah, things change so quickly, you know, especially at this time of year. It's funny when we send out the baseball forecaster, you know, that gets in people's mailboxes in December, but we do the bulk of the writing for it in October. And then come January or so, we send out the uh, the PDF electronic version of it to people who bought it from us. And we include the Excel files of the projections so people can work with that. And a common complaint I get is that in that spreadsheet, which again was developed in October, we don't, we don't even have the player's team noted there because it's such, you know, it's certain to be dated for so many players by the time anybody actually gets their eyes on it. And I write back and I say, yeah, well, you're right. We don't have the team in it. We didn't forget it. You know, but then we all offer an update. Uh, that just went out last week to book buyers that gives them a sort of a one-time snapshot of our current projections on March 1st so that they can work, you know, with just that if they want to. But you're right. It's just a whole other level to be able to go in day over day 
and see how things change as we're analyzing playing time battles. I mean, think about the uh, the Michael Saunders situation last week where his projection went from a full season of playing time to a half season of playing time after he you know, reportedly wrecked his knee to, oh, no, wait, it's not so bad. He'll be back on April 15th. And now the net is, you know, from the beginning of the week to the end of the week, he only lost, you know, projected 10% of his playing time or something like that. But you sort of need, if you're going to your draft on a Saturday morning or whatever it is, you know, the last thing you want to do is grab the most recent projections because they may even have accounted for things that are playing time analysts who spend so much of their time this time of year tracking each position battle or each, you know, prospect who might be sticking around in camp longer than you think those guys are doing work sort of so you don't have to so when you print out the projections you know uh all of their good work and analysis are already baked in there they may have moved a lever the night before to give a a, a second closer an extra 15 percent of saves because a closer has a balky elbow or something like that you may not have even read the news item but you'll look at the projection and you'll say oh why does adam Adovino have 14 saves he only had seven last week and well that's why so you know it, we're yeah, we've got a whole staff of people who are covering this thing from every angle, angle, and you know it's all baked into the tools that you're taking to your draft. Yeah, I think the the important thing in the uh, updating process, I know, and I know, I know personally players who who say, ah, you know, it's uh, used to be 37, now it's 33, or now it's 38. Who cares, right? It's a marginal difference. It's not that precise anyway, and so forth. But to them, I say, listen. The playing time factor is so important nowadays. Everything's rated to, to at-bats or innings pitched, and then we multiply up by what our expectation is for at-bats or innings pitched for that particular player. And when you look at the uh, magazines or the very early projections in December or January, if you just add up the at-bats, some of the teams are a 1,000 short of where they're going to be. Some of them are a 1,000 over where they're going to be because nobody really knows. Everybody's just kind of guessing and feeling their way along. And as the season works towards opening day, we get firmer and firmer, clearer and clearer, sharper and sharper focus on how those at-bat situations are going to shape up, how the innings pitch situations are going to shape up, and so forth. And that, I think, is the huge advantage of the Baseball HQ type projections over the magazine type projections. Right. Sort of the worst thing you can do from a projection point of view is, say, back in December or January when so many of these magazines have their press deadlines that we're placing a bet that player X is going to win a job. Well, you know, in some cases that's okay, but if you do that on any kind of widespread basis, you're going to be wrong a whole bunch of the time. And then what you've written come March 15th or March 25th, when people are taking that magazine into their draft is, you know, outright erroneous information and it's misleading. The way we try to do it, like you said, is we, you know, we, Ron Chandler calls it taking 10, 10, pounds worth of projections and sifting them into a five pound bag. You know, we start out, you know, sort of over projecting everyone, you know, all bench guys will probably give, you know, more playing time and we'll over project positions, you know, first base on a particular team, we might project at 125% of the playing time that's available back in say December. But then as we creep closer and closer to opening day, we start to figure out, you know, where those battles are still going on and where we should be hedging versus where the playing time is pretty crystallized. And we'll take those back to, you know, the proper allocations. And then point being that, you know, come late March, you know, when everyone is heading to their drafts, we've completed that process. And our projections for playing time are exact. They're not accurate because nobody's are. We don't know who's going to get hurt the day after opening day, but they're at least properly sized. And that gives you, you know, the, the, the right valuations in the player pool and the right 
number of counting stats available and that sort of thing, which is what you need to get those accurate dollar values that are that we were talking about earlier. Well, that's an interesting topic, dollar values. I talk with Todd Zola every Friday on the show here, and and the subject of how to value players and how to convert projections into dollars is something that comes up pretty regularly between Todd and and me. And and I I wonder if you could explain without giving away any proprietary stuff how do how does BaseballHQ.com convert a projection of homers, RBIs, steals, and batting average and runs scored into a dollar value in that particular draft? I think the way Todd described it is. Pretty- Pretty, uh, pretty applicable to us as well as when he described his own process. You know, the quick thumbnail though is you take a take a category, uh, runs for instance, and you know we will order the players in runs from the guy who has the most projected runs to the guy who has the least, and then based on what you put in for your league size, if you have 14 hitters in a 10 team league, then you know the 140th hitter is the last hitter, right? So. We will then go look at the 140th hitter, and he is worth a dollar for runs, whatever his runs projection might be. It might be 38, it might be 20, whatever. Uh, but that number becomes the sort of the $1 baseline, and then we sort of value back up from the 140th player and runs all the way up to the top guy based on how much better they are than that baseline level. And the guy who gives you a couple more runs than the worst guy is worth $2, and you sort of build your way all the way back up the ladder there. And that's how you do it for any one category. And then at the you know, once you've done that for all the scoring ca- scoring categories in the league, you just average out the values per category for each player, and that's your that's your overall dollar value. How about the ratio categories? Yeah, the way the way those work is you need to know sort of what your uh, what, what your baseline is. You know, again, you can find the 140th hitter and what he is in batting average, but the the other element you have to account there for is uh, is excuse me the playing time. So you know a two a two fifty batting average and a hundred at bats is different has a different impact on your scoring than a two fifty batting average and five hundred and fifty at bats. So you, the way you do that how is you actually break it down to value the the hits and the at bats and you know the components to make up the ratio rather than the ratio itself. But that uh, you know that, that's an additional element. You're right. You have to account for in the ratio categories because you have to not only assess what the ratio is, but what its impact on your team-wide ratio is. And Ron Chandler has famously been very candid about the shortcomings of all projection systems and all player valuation systems. Um, what do you think is the main drawback to, or the main impediment to getting a really, really accurate player forecast, and from that, a really, really, really accurate uh, valuation in dollar terms? Yeah, it's... To me, the problem isn't the dollar term so much. I think the translation is fairly straightforward. I mean, maybe somewhere, somewhere down the road, you know, some new economic theory is going to come along that has us rethink how we turn projected stat line into dollar values. And I know you and Todd had a conversation a few weeks ago going through the two or three main ways that's done now. But the problem really is on the projecting a stat line because there are just so many variables from, you know, who's going to win a job to who's going to get hurt. Not just on the you know on the playing time side, just playing time may not be distributed the way we think it is, or the way we think it should be for that matter. And then on top of that, there's just these guys are human beings, and you know we may get the playing time exactly right, but the guy may either go nuts and exceed our expectations, or he may fall flat on his face because he may be you know getting a divorce or have a sick kid or be playing through an oblique injury that he didn't tell anybody about all year. It's just you know we're lacking all of the necessary inputs informationally to, to make better decisions. I think we do pretty well based on the scope that we can see 
through our our lens from the outside like this, but there's just so much that's obscured from us that you know there's there's no way a better model or a better way to weight three or five year projected averages or a better way to turn those projected averages into dollar values just can't compensate for all the stuff we can't see. And not only that, but going back to what we talked about earlier, there's all the stuff that happens at the at the auction table in the heat of the moment that sometimes fires those values as carefully calibrated as they are right out the window. I mean, if the first uh, at Tout Wars mixed auction last year, uh, Derek Van Riper spent $65 on Mike Trout, $50 on, uh, on Miguel Cabrera, and $48 or some magnificent sum on Jose Bautista, and in the space of three players had spent like two-thirds of his money, and he won the league by the way. But as soon as he did that, uh, it distorted or changed to distorted is maybe a bit harsh, but it definitely changed how all the other players in the draft got valued. You know, all of a sudden people are looking around going, geez, in this league, it's an on-base league. Maybe Shinsu Chu's worth 38 bucks. Maybe Joey Votto's worth 38 bucks. Uh, um, for sure, uh, Andrew McCutcheon's going to be worth 45 or 50, which is way above. And this isn't non-keeper league, so there's no actual inflation in the draft. And uh, that dynamic has such an effect on player pricing that it almost seems like once that first player gets called out and sold, everything has changed. And it changes every single time a player goes off the board. And we come back to this idea of you have to understand how the value is built. You have to understand where the value is coming from for your team in the league's context and not rely so much on looking at your draft grid or your magazine or whatever it is that says 27 bucks. That's exactly right. And if you take it back to the, you know, a minute ago and what we were saying earlier about you know, getting better information and developing better projections and better dollar values, that's why Ron's point for so many years has been that's a false quest because you're never going to account for what's going on at your draft table, your auction table. And for that matter, these games would be incredibly boring if we all had perfect information. We'd sit here and we'd have to change the you know bidding increment from a dollar to a penny, and we'd be arguing about whether Mike Trout is worth forty-four dollars and twelve cents or forty-four dollars and thirteen cents. I mean, it's the it's the difference of opinion, the you know the different weighting of the information we have available, and then the ways on top of that to potentially speculate or account for the information we don't know about. That what makes our perceptions different and drives the you know the projected differences and the valuation differences that actually you know, create the interest and the diversity in our games. Yeah, and I, I had this discussion years ago with another uh, member of the Baseball HQ staff who uh, he thought that it would be a great idea if we went to metrics as categories rather than to on-field results. So instead of strikeouts, we, he would want to have uh, our dominance ratio strikeouts per nine. Instead of uh, homers and RBIs, maybe um, power index or, or something along those lines, to, to reduce the amount of luck or variance that occurs on the baseball field. And my argument was, yeah, but that seems to take a lot of the fun out of it. You know, if, you, if you're at the racetrack and the racing form tells you who's going to win and everybody knows it, nobody makes any money, nobody has any fun, they, they troop dutifully across the line in the order prescribed. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't, uh, you know, that doesn't have a heck of a lot of appeal to me either. I know those leagues that are out there that use, uh, you know, all the sabermetric categories and instead of home runs, they use an isolated power or whatever. And, right. Hey, more power to you. That's fine. It happens to not be my particular cup of tea. No, mine either. You you mentioned something interesting though about the uh, uh, Mike Trout of forty four twelve versus forty four thirteen, and who really cares? In Larry Schechter's book, he said it matters. Yeah, he did, and you know, it's hard to argue with Larry's track record. But then again, I think, for sure. you know, his, I think his point was more about, 
that information mattered more for his own benefit, and he wanted to know, to, to better inform his decisions, he wanted everything rounded out to the second decimal place, which I think one of the things that make it effective for him is that not everybody else is doing that. Right. And if everyone had a dollar value to the penny and stuck to it, then things would get awfully boring in a hurry. Because, you know, like, like we said, that everyone's paying for exactly the same stat line, and it's a rounding area, error what you think it's worth. You know, now there's no diversity of opinion anymore. Well, I think one person taking it out to that extreme in a league, you know, he clearly believes in his track record, says that gives him an advantage. But if all 12 people were doing, you know, following his exact process, then I think he would have a harder time finding an edge, or any of us would, if we, if we were playing against 11 people. You know, we're sort of a, you know, a different branch of the same Borg brain that we were using. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, speculator columnist and co-general manager. And uh, Ray, get your speculator hat on now because during spring training, I always like to ask our expert guests to talk about what I call sleepers and weepers for the coming season. Sleepers, of course, players you want to target as potential bargains and weepers being the ones that are going to make you cry if you roster them. They're potential busts and you want to stay away. So if you're a game, let's get rolling with some batters, sleeper batters in the American League. I got a theme for the sleeper batters. Uh, on the American League, this, my choice is Carlos Beltran. Uh, you know, the, uh, um, the theme is, of course, the undervalued veteran who was you know, valued a lot more highly last year than he seems to be going this year. And, you know, Beltran, of course, had a, some injury problems last year. The shoulder, the uh, elbow, excuse me, that forced him to DH so often and seemed to sap his power even when he was in the lineup. But, you know, we were really, really high on Beltran as a potential value signing when he went to New York last year. And things went off the rails for some reasons there that, you know, seemed like they could be corrected this year. He's a year older and the risk is still real, you know, he's never really been a model of durability, but I think he can be really productive when he's in the lineup, and I think the, the his low valuation in the market right now leaves a lot of room for profit, even if he only gets, you know, 450 at-bats or something like that. Never a model of durability might be the understatement of the uh, HQ Radio season so far. How about a National League sleeper batter? Oh, you want to talk about not a, ma- not a model of durability? I'm going to go even further out on that limb with you. I'm gonna, I want to talk about Carl Crawford for a minute, uh, who you know, of course, is sort of the poster child for lack of durability these days. But, you know, kind of pretty quietly, when he played in L.A. last year, his skills were still pretty good. And, you know, he was running a little and, you know, he battled through some injuries. Or, you know, I should say he sh- got shut down periodically for, you know, nagging ailments. But, you know, it was sort of th- the best skill set we've seen from him in a couple of years. And, you know, maybe I'm a fool for jumping off this bridge again. But, you know, kind of like Beltran, even if he can find 400 at-bats in between, you know, three separate... 15-day DL stints, you know, I get kind of encouraged by what he might be able to do if he can carry if he can carry those skills when he's in the lineup. And the, again, the market is sort of leaving a, him at a price point where I think you can jump on him and and make a pro, you know pay for only 350 at bats, and if he gets you 450, you're making money on. Them. Yeah, and I agree with this, and one of the reasons is last year he he amassed somewhere around 350 at-bats. I actually had him on my tout team for a dollar and very pleased to have done so. And everybody assumes when they see the low at-bat count that, oh, Carl was injured again. And indeed he was. He had those nagging aches and pains that he always seems to have. But also the the uh, Dodger outfield was just a crowded situation. And there may be some opportunity for playing time growth, I think, this year because there's just fewer outfielders to spread the spread the love around. Yeah, that's exactly right. Particularly later in the year, he was pretty productive. My experience with him was I picked him up, you know, off of waivers in my NFBC league, you know, after one of his DL stints where he had gotten dropped. 
And when he came back in August and September, he was pretty productive. And I think you're right. I think maybe sort of the, the Dodgers backed into a Carl Crawford management strategy last year where they found out that not only with the nagging injuries, but it, you know he can be a Maybe he's one of those guys who's more effective only playing four or five days a week and trying to sort of limit the wear and tear there. and You get better skills from him if you keep him rested. So it might be that if they you know sort of back off on playing him every day in between DL stints, you might get fewer DL stints out of him. And uh, you mentioned last year, I think around 680 his OPS was in the first half of the season and, and over 800 in the second half. And he stole a bunch of bags, both halves. And, and uh, just generally, I, I thought was a, a pretty decent player for a buck. And I'd certainly take him again for a buck this year. But I see him on an awful lot of uh, sleeper lists now, Ray. It's, uh, it's going to be a little harder to sneak Carl Crawford through, I think. So we've got uh, Carlos Beltran, Carl Crawford as your sleeper batters. Let's move on to your weeper batters. And uh, again, let's start with the American League. In the American League, I don't want to exactly throw a bucket of cold water on this guy, but I'm a little leery of George Springer. I, I understand the reasons for the optimism. You know, he showed a bunch of power and speed and limited playing time last year. And if you take what he did in, you know, 200-something at-bats and map that out to a full season and keep him healthy, it gets, you know, that, those are some staggering numbers you get. But I'm still leery of guys who strike out a lot. I kind of want Springer to show me he can stay healthy for a full season and the valuation I see him at now, he goes to the second round in some drafts. That's just not a bridge I can cross. That's I, someone else is going to own George Springer because someone else is going to be able to, someone's going to be too tantalized by that extrapolation of his part season numbers last year. And I'm not going to be that guy. I just can't go there. 33% strikeout rate last year. That's really high. A lot of, when he does hit the ball, he hits a, a a good poke. And, and, you know, if you think he could somehow get that strikeout, rate under control, then maybe uh, there's some upside here. But yeah, I'm very leery of the of the high strikeout guys in general. How about a weeper batter for the National League? Uh, this guy hasn't been one of my favorites for a few years now, even though he's been pretty productive. Uh, talking about Matt Carpenter in St. Louis, uh, you know, he's sort of a handy rotisserie guy because he his primary value is in that, you know, that underappreciated category of runs. And, you know, at third base, his skill set is a little bit unique where you get batting average and runs, whereas you know most people perceive that to be a power position. So it, I understand his utility as someone that lets you do some different things in terms of roster construction. But to me, he lost a lot of value when he moved from second base to third base a couple of years ago. And so much of his value now with the runs is context dependent. And two years ago, he scored something like 120 runs. and That really propped up his value going into last year. And I think you know, he really disappointed some owners who were looking for that again. And But even last year, he scored 99 runs with a good batting average, you know, 10 home runs, 60 RBIs, something like that. And that's a more reasonable price point, but I think people are paying for a little more than that. And I'm not sure it's there. And if things go wrong in St. Louis, that's sort of an older lineup. And if, you know, anything happened to Holiday or Lena again, or if Jason Hayward doesn't take a step forward, I'm not sure that group can be so productive. And Carpenter at the top of that lineup may not get so much additional value from the guys behind them doing as good a job as they did last year and the year before. I tend to like guys whose batting average is well above their expected batting average over a period of time, and that's certainly been the case for Matt Carpenter since 2012. He's out-hit his XBA by, you know, 30, 40 points a year, and last year he out-hit it by only about 19, and, and that seems to be a warning sign to me. His batting average plummeted from 318 to 272. He hit a few uh, less home runs, 8 versus 11. His run scored, you mentioned, went down. That's a team function partly, but also he, he wasn't getting on base at quite the same clip, a little bit lower. 
there's a lot of warning signs here for Matt Carpenter. I would roster him if the price was right, and I think that price is probably in the mid-teens, 14 15 bucks. I think is where I would bow out of the, of the bidding, and I strongly suspect he'll go for more than that. Yeah, the... Uh that's the thing. These are all questions of the market. You know, like I said, we were saying with Springer a minute ago, if I could get him valued based on, you know, 400 at bats or something like that, 450 at bats, that's a different thing. But, you know, I, all of these picks for me are, you know, sort of based on where the market's putting people in. You know, Springer and Carpenter, I think the market is just putting them higher than I'm willing to go. George Springer and Matt Carpenter are Ray Murphy's weeper batters for 2015. Let's move on to the pitchers. Uh, again, we'll go first to the American League for a sleeper pitcher. Boy, there's so, you know, in general, the theme here is there's so much pitching. You can, you know, sort of zero in on anybody and, you know, within reason and start to make cases. So, yeah, where's your sleeper? Where's your pocket of value? And it almost seems like one of the few remaining pockets of value is guys who didn't have a full season last year or who their, their skills have, you know, recently disappeared for reasons of injury or something else, but you want to bet on them coming back. Uh, and in the American League, one guy who catches my eye who fits that description is Derek Holland. You know, he missed a good chunk of the beginning of last year, I think the first half or two-thirds of the season uh, due to injury. He came back and looked pretty good late in the season. And that big gap of missed time is almost enough to make you forget about, you know, what he was before that. And he was, you know, really good in tw- 2012 and 2013 and was, you know, rising up a lot of people's lists as, you know, a guy who might be able to, you know, not graduate to you know, quite ace status, but, you know, certainly a reliable, dependable number two starter type. And I think sort of he gets a little forgotten about because there's so much pitching available now and so many guys sort of rose up through the ranks while he was out last year. And we had all those breakouts and everyone's talking about your Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco and, you know, the equivalent guys in the National League and Matt Shoemaker and Anaheim. You know, there's this whole new class of pitchers that come along. And while you're sponging up sort of all those new names and figuring out where to rank them. You sort of forget about the guys who, you know, got lapped last year. And Holland's one of those who I think, you know, does not, uh, does not deserve to be forgotten about because I think there's still some real talent there. And over in the National League, how about a sleeper pitcher over there? Uh, you know, not along the same theme, but a guy I like a lot is uh, Zach Wheeler with the Mets. You know, again, you could name, you could rattle off so many sleeper pitchers, but you know, context matters a lot to me, and Wheeler made a lot of gains in the second half last year. And then to sort of look around at the team in the division context, it's a good ballpark. Uh, he's going to face a lot of the Braves and Phillies who can't hit. You know, I, I like all that. There's, you know, the Washington's obviously a good team in that division, but the rest of that division, you know, is not a bunch of imposing offenses. Miami's pretty decent, but that's a good park for pitching too. You know, I think the NL East is a place where a pitcher like Wheeler, who's, who legitimately has good stuff, I'm not picking him just because of his context, but if you take, you know, good and still growing skills and put them in, you know, a somewhat soft environment, that's an environment that's going to protect him, I, I really like his ceiling. And finally, Ray, to the Weeper pitchers. Again, let's start in the American League. Uh, some health concerns here, my theme for the Weeper pitchers in the AL. Michael Pineda did great things last year, uh, you know, when he pitched, uh, you know, surprised everybody by, you know, being ready to start the season and, you know, got interrupted with some, you know, shenanigans with a, uh, with some pine tar on his cap or whatever it was. But then, you know, at the end of the year, came back and, you know, still looked pretty good. But as a result of some of the, uh, you know, lingering injuries and the Yankees managing them carefully and then the suspension and stuff like that, you know, it's still a fairly small body of work. He only threw, uh, I forget, something like 80 innings or something like that. Um, and that's just not enough for me to extrapolate that he's able to do the same thing in 180 this year. The skills were really interesting. It's a great story. It's nice to see him come back, but I, you know, it's too much of a leap to, you know, build up that workload for me this year. And if he does stay healthy enough to carry that workload, and I hope he does, I just have my doubts that he can 
keep his skills at the same level, pitching at literally every fifth day all year long. And how about a weeper pitcher in the National League? I, I always like to take an extra look at guys who change teams and sort of extrapolate what the team that gave him up might be thinking about. And kind of worries me that the Reds gave up Matt, La- Matt Latos and sent him to Miami. Uh, I, I almost wonder what they knew about him. I know that a lot of it was financially driven, and they had to make some tough choices about, you know, cutting salary and making room to retain Cueto and, uh, you know, the big paychecks that are due to guys like Votto this year. So I know there were some financial considerations there, and it's not necessarily a pure indictment of Latos, but still, I kind of worry about what they were thinking and you know what they you know may know or have concerns about with Latos moving to Miami now, maybe. Maybe they think that you know some of his ongoing concerns are you know approaching a critical mass or something like that. Before I let you go, are you doing the West Coast swing of first pitch forums? No, Brent Turchie is going out there. He'll be meeting up with Jock Thompson and Todd Zola. Uh, they got a good crew out there. They didn't need me, so I did the uh, I did the Midwest last weekend and I did Boston this past weekend. So I got my uh, I've wrapped up my personal first pitch tour. All right, Ray. Thanks a million. Thank you, Patrick. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, and he writes the speculator column for the site as well. Next up, the Minor League Minute with a report on Arizona pitching prospect Archie Bradley. This is Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, inviting you to go back to the future with us. 2015 is the 30th anniversary of the original Back to the Future movie, and this year is also the future destination that Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd traveled to in that movie. Back to the Future is the theme of our 2015 First Pitch Forums program. No, we won't have a DeLorean at the events, but we will do some time traveling into the future ourselves as we preview the 2015 baseball season. Join us for these entertaining three-plus-hour seminars and jumpstart your draft prep. In the coming weeks, we will be coming to Chicago, Cincinnati, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, the New York, New Jersey area, Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Admission is just $39 in advance, 54 in Cincinnati, and you can get the dates and details at BaseballHQ.com. Just look for the First Pitch Forums box on the right side of the homepage. We'll see you there. First Pitch Forums 2015 wrap-up this weekend, Saturday in Los Angeles and Sunday in San Francisco. Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is keeping busy all during spring training, getting you ready for your drafts with features like Matt Cedarholm's latest Market Pulse column looking at 2015 relief pitchers, Matt Gelfand's Facts and Flukes column looking at Robinson Cano, Chris Tillman, Coco Crisp, and other players, and the Rotisserie Gaming column with Chris Olson looking at the Over 30 plan. And by the way, I'll be looking at the Bernhard plan a little later on this preseason. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentary, the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Arizona pitching prospect Archie Bradley is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Arizona Diamondbacks' Archie Bradley is looking to get things back on track after a frustrating and injury-shortened 2014. Bradley, who was the 7th overall pick in the 2011 draft, had established himself as one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. 
but Bradley missed almost two months of action with a flexor strain in his right elbow and then wasn't particularly sharp when he returned at the beginning of July, going 3-7 with a 4.45 VRA in just 83 innings. Prior to the injury, Bradley featured a plus 93-96 mile an hour fastball that topped out at 98 miles an hour. But his velocity was down to the 90-93 range after the injury and his once plus curveball was much less effective. Bradley did make six appearances in the Arizona Fall League but posted an ugly 7.13 ERA and below average command continues to be a significant issue for him. In 373 minor league innings, Bradley has now walked 4.9 batters per nine and last year at AA he walked 36 and 54 innings. Yet despite these red flags, Archie Bradley remains an elite prospect. At 6'4", 225 pounds, he has an ideal power pitching frame, and when he's right, he can simply blow hitters away. The Diamondbacks will take a long look at Bradley this spring, and he did get off to a nice start in his 2015 debut, giving up just one hit while striking out three in two scoreless innings. Most likely, Archie Bradley begins the year at AAA Reno, but the 22-year-old should make his big league debut early in 2015, and is definitely worth a roster spot in deep and all-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Martin League analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. This week, our extensive spring training prospect coverage continues with Jeremy Deloney's report on 2015's top outfield prospects. All season long, Rob and Jeremy and the whole BaseballHQ.com minor leagues team will be bringing you reports and updates on the prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tab on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league and at your draft table, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 7, the first Tuesday edition of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest for this edition of the show, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. And our Minor League Minute commentator was Rob Gordon from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.